Uh, we're at the tail end of a series that we've been doing. It's September 1st, so we've been doing this now since June. So that's three months in this series called Christianese. Uh, and we've covered all sorts of sort of standard Christian phrases that I think we could breathe new life into. Uh, and, and we've done that in some creative and fun ways, and this has been one of my favorite series that we've ever done. Uh, so just so you know, next week... We're going to start a little mini-series we prepare. Uh, I've got to touch base with the strategy team so that we can figure out what we're going to talk about moving past that. But for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about uh, characters. And I'm talking minor characters. And that's going to come up in a big way at the end of the sermon. But uh, just know uh, it'll be a fun thing to invite your friends back to uh, coming up in the next three weeks. And here's something else that I'll be very honest with you. In church, uh, you have several moments where it's very fun to grow and you experience this kind of thing and then summer hits and you're like back to there and then you kind of come back up in the fall and so in the fall we really want to ramp up and use this as an opportunity to invite our friends into this place uh, and experience what resonate is so if you have someone on your heart that you've been thinking about oh man i've been looking for like a fun sunday to do that uh next week and the following two weeks are gonna be those fun sundays so please invite 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 we want to just make sure that uh, everyone's getting a piece of this um, but for today, what I'd like to talk about for our last Christianese phrase uh, is bitterness. If you've been around uh, in the church for it, like kind of any period of time, you might have heard the phrase, uh, a bitter root, right? It's just a bitter root. I've got a bitter root about this, or, or I don't want to encounter a bitter root. Basically just meaning like I don't want something uh, inside of me to grow that is bitter in the wrong way. But what does that actually mean? We throw that phrase around a lot. Uh, but I'd love to explore what bitterness is, what a root is, and what we actually want to build our lives upon. So to do that, let's talk about roots really, really fast. Roots are fascinating. Uh, you know there are some trees and plants where their roots are even bigger than the tree that you see in the thing. I tried to look this up, and I, I'm terrible at plants, and I don't have a backyard. I'm in a one-bedroom apartment, so I'm not going to Home Depot and looking at trees. Uh, but there are trees that, like, you, like, they will tell you, please don't plant that in the backyard because once you plant it, that sucker's in there for good and you're gonna have to excavate the heck out of it to get it out and it's gonna result in this massive hole for this tiny little tree. So the truth is roots matter and sometimes they matter a whole lot more than what we see on the outside. There's this beautiful sect of Christianity and it's the Celtic tradition. The Celtic tradition and the Roman tradition sort of grew in separate sects for a long time in church history. So they each had their own sort of traditions and, 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 and festivals and stuff like that. And, and once the Roman Empire kind of took over and the missionaries kind of come like up to the Celtic regions, they began to mesh. And what was cool about the Roman Empire at that time and the Roman Christians and the Catholic Church at that time was that they didn't want to just come and wipe out all the traditions of the Celtics. What they wanted to do is come in and say like, okay, well, what can we do with some of the pagan stuff that they're doing and the Christian stuff that they're doing so that we can combine this and make it a more beautiful thing. And actually that's where we get the festival of Christmas and the reason that the date is on that date is because that was their festival of lights. That was their festival of like the newest light coming into the world. So when they saw this is a festival, they're celebrating the newest, brightest light. The darkest night is over in the, in the whole calendar. Now it's time for brightness. Now it's time for harvest. What does that look like? Oh, that kind of looks like Christmas. So we're going to tell them, hey, we actually have a name for this. So this mysterious thing that you've been celebrating, the thing you can't pin down, I think we can help you pin it down. 
we've got something. It's called Jesus. And then they would share the gospel. And then you'd have these awesome sort of hybrid festivals that would happen. Now, it got much darker later on where they would just roll in and say, like, all your stuff is gone. Uh, you're now going to celebrate what we celebrate. But for a unique period, especially in the Celtic tradition, we had this meshing, this really cool sort of like, like hybrid stuff uh, going on. And one of the coolest things that they did uh, was they took the symbol of the tree, which the Celtics called a dur, which is just a word for door, um, but it's dur. And dur basically means a window uh, into a new world. It's a threshold, it's a place where you walk through and once you walk through, you've encountered something new, you are changed forever. And the Celtics believed that trees sort of had this power. So then they would counter a sacred tree, they would walk through that tree, into that tree, touch that tree, have some sort of sacred ritual around the tree, and then their belief is that they would come away forever changed. And so what the Christians did with that is they looked at it and they said, okay, well, what is it about a tree that fascinates them so much? Why do they believe that this is the threshold between two different worlds, that this is the threshold moment between like your life now and then a life there. And when they asked the Celtics, they said this. This is a picture of their Celtic tree, and it looks like this. Uh, if you'll notice, the tree is exactly the same on both sides, right? So their vision of a tree is that the roots mirrored what was on the top precisely. It was the exact reflection so that you could literally take the roots of the tree and the top of the tree and you could shift them like this and it would look exactly the same. So their view was what was underneath matters just as much as what's on top and in fact that's what informs change. That your roots, that what you choose to place your roots in is going to shape what happens out here and in fact they are really exactly the same. What you choose to root your soul in, your life in, is going to affect every aspect of your outward life. And in our society, we focus on the outward. We focus on band-aids, we focus on bandages, we focus on symptoms. And there's very little focus on what we actually need to do on the inside to change this. And so that's where we get this verse about the bitter root. This comes out of um, Hebrews, I believe. Or is, the, is it the bird? Yeah, Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. Pursue the goal of peace along with everyone and holiness as well. And this is, he's speaking to uh, a church at this point. And what's fun about this is he's speaking to a church that's about this size. Like these small communities were, were figuring it out as they went along. So he's trying to guide them and say like, hey, here's how it's done. And this is Paul. So he said, uh, because no one will see the Lord without it. Make sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Think about that as a message for the church. As he's speaking to the church trying to fix a problem, he says, hey, make sure that no one, no one around you misses out on God's grace. That no one, that your neighbor doesn't miss out on God's grace, that you don't miss out on God's grace, that no one misses out on God's grace. And even more than that, that anyone you invite into this community does not miss out on God's grace. It's vitally important. Uh, make sure that no root of bitterness grows up that might cause trouble and pollute many people. So what we have here is a juxtaposition. We've got grace on the one side, and we've got bitterness on the other. And what he's saying is grace permeates, right? Because there's no root language there. He's just saying the grace of God. Make sure they experience it. But when he talks about bitterness, he doesn't talk about it in the same sort of blanket way. He talks about it almost as if it's this tiny little seed that gets in us. And once it gets in us, it begins to grow. And once it begins to grow, it's extremely hard to unearth. Right? 
it's extremely hard to get out. Once we have that little taste of bitterness, that little like, oh, then all of a sudden that starts to grow and the harder and harder it gets to actually move through that. So he's saying, I want you to experience grace. I want the people in your church to experience grace. I do not want, and it's so easy for them to catch those seeds of bitterness and start growing those roots because what happens when they grow that root, the grace begins to hurt. It becomes harder to touch on that grace. And that's what he's talking about when he says a bitter root. And so how do we, as a church, fight that bitter root with grace? What does grace mean? And, and how do we actually like unearth if there is bitterness? Because trust me, if you're living in Los Angeles right now, you are bitter about something. <laughs> you may have been bitter about the drive on the way here, right? Like we all encounter bitterness. I just came back from a two-week trip uh, in which... Uh, we got back to our apartment, and our apartment was like, uh, it, it was completely fine, everything was good, uh, except we walked into uh, our, our kitchen, uh, and we discovered that one window had been left open. One little window, not even a big window, just this little crack. And I was like, oh, that's probably not good, um, because our landlord uh, is very particular. He grew up in the particular unit that we're in, uh, and he does not want to put anything over the windows that would impede people like seeing the majesticness of these 1940s windows, which, by the way, have cracked like four times. Uh, but we're, we're not supposed to put screens up. And that hasn't stopped us before, but in this particular instance, this is not a window that we put a screen up on. And so we walk into our kitchen, and all of a sudden, I just take one step towards the fridge, and just this thing of like, it looked like, if you've ever seen the 1990s version of The Mummy, <laughs> I know that's an obscure reference, I've seen it like 20 times. Uh, when all the beetles fly up, it was like that, except they were tiny little uh, fruit flies. And these fruit flies are everywhere, folks. They are everywhere. I'm talking in the cabinets. I'm talking when you would open a drawer. I'm talking in the fridge. I don't know how these things have gotten everywhere, but the bitterness I experienced when I walked into that kitchen was about as visceral as can be, and then I thought to myself, what am I preaching about this Sunday? Bitterness, bingo, this is gonna fuel me. So I went on a rampage online, and it turns out that the most vicious people towards insects and rodents are not who you think they are. They are actually all powerful mom blogs. Mom blogs have more creative ideas to kill rodents and insects than I've ever seen in my life. And so we went through all this whole thing of like how to kill them. We set traps for them. I filled jars with applesauce ready to like trap them. Uh, we bleached our sink. I sprayed stuff to the detriment of my dog who might die now. Like everything we've tried and still these relentless fruit flies remain, right? Uh, and, and there's a choice in this, okay? And the choice is hard here because there's not a clear, like, you know what I can learn from this? It's just there's a clear lesson. There's no clear lesson in there. <laughs> Those fruit flies are annoying. But in every instance in which we encounter something that we feel like is out of our control, there's a chance that bitterness is going to creep in. And that's really important to pay attention to just in your own heart and your own breath. This is why we get so frustrated in traffic. It's out of our control. There's nothing we can do. And so when there's nothing we can do and we realize that, we begin to panic and that creates bitterness. And we trust bitterness because we think it can solve the problem. I think the more stressed out, the more angry I get at this, that's somehow going to fix it or at least it's gonna make me feel better and it might make you feel better in the moment, but it's not the right response. And that idea of response, I think, is the key 
to unlocking bitterness and the key to actually true meaning. What do you want to grow your roots in? Not bitterness. So your response, whenever a situation which you cannot control or a situation that is terrible comes up, your response is going to grow your roots in one way or another. Especially your response where you leave God out of the picture. You have a choice. You can respond one way, you can respond the other way. One way leads to those roots going down further in bitterness, and the other one results in grace, results in meaning, results in joy. So response creates roots. You have to deal with over a thousand responses a day, whether that's emails, texts, left turns, right turns, doors, anything you can think of, you're responding to something that's coming at you. And so there are thousands of chances for grace a day. I just think that's like a beautiful, beautiful picture. There are also thousands of chances for bitterness a day, right? The problem is the older we get, the more cynical our responses get. When you are a child, and literally, like, if you ever just, like, spent time with a five-year-old, my wife is a kindergarten teacher. She spends time with 22 five-year-olds each and every day. I can go in there and play guitar for them, and I can stand it for about five whole minutes. But somehow, she has this amazing ability uh, to hang out with these. But what I've noticed whenever I go in there is there's this inherent sense of joy. You can see in these kids at least, and this isn't true universally, but in these children, you can see that no one has snuffed out that joy yet. That there's not that stress yet. That the biggest stress they might have is that they don't get that toy or that ice cream later, right? That there's not stuff in life. So their response to everything is pretty much wonderful, right? Like, hey, you wanna walk down the hall? Like, yeah, I do. Like, there's just a huge, like, joy in it, right? Everything is a joy. Hey, we get to go in a car ride. We do? Like, the, like that kind of stuff happens, and it doesn't happen to adults, right? Think of the classic example, and this is always used to like, well, we will never learn, but I'm telling you that the reason, that, that classic thing of like a child putting their hand on a stove, right? That can be used as, though, well, people just, you know, I have to put their hand on the stove. I truly believe a child wants to put their hand on the stove because they still think there's a sense of wonder there, <laughs> right? There might be something exciting when I put my hand on the stove. But the problem is the older and older we get, the more and more we've stuck our hand on the stove and realized that there's not wonder as we're reaching there, but there's bitterness, there's hurt, there's anger, there's destruction. And so by the time we make it to adulthood, that wonder, that, that, that just ache for something new and exciting becomes less and less. It becomes more bitter and more bitter and more bitter. And it seems like we have every sort of excuse for that because yes, and I know in this room, I know there's hurt that validates a lack of wonder. But I'm telling you the whole point of this Jesus thing is that that hurt doesn't win and that wonder wins out instead. That wonder can absolutely destroy that hurt and that pain and it can give us strength to wanna reach out again and not at the stove this time, (laughs) but maybe it actually it's something more beautiful. What's amazing about that, and a huge example for us adults at least, is that if you look in the scriptures, there is example time and time again, almost from the very first page, of adults dealing with response situations, and they respond in the correct way or in the wrong way, 
right? But God gives them something. I'm going to call this a holy invitation, right? It goes a step beyond an invitation. It goes a step beyond just like, hey, come to dinner. It's more like, hey, I want to encounter you and change your life in a huge way. Will you step into that? Will you choose to change everything? And what's wonderful is that most of the main characters we have in the Bible choose to take that step. First one we encounter is Abraham, and we have no idea why he does it. He comes out of nowhere, and all we know is that he's in his late years. He's probably like in his 80s, and at that point, God says, hey, I want you to leave everything, and I want you to go to a land that I have for you. And in our language, that just means like, you want me to move to Kentucky? No, but the, the, the real thing is, hey, I have a better life for you in store. And I know that's hard for you to believe, but will you walk into it? And the crazy thing is we know nothing about Abraham at that point, except that he just says yes. Same thing happens uh, when we get to uh, Joseph. Joseph is a character in the Bible, and, and you may know him from the Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that good stuff. But the real story of Joseph is gruesome. He's thrown into a well, beaten nearly to death, taken into slavery, worked his way from a slave to a prisoner, up the ranks, all the way to Pharaoh's like number two. And he chooses to stay with God that whole time. He chooses to trust in that that whole time. You get to Moses, you get to a burning bush, you get to a guy, Moses, again, children's stories floating down the river, it's a basket, it's all fun and good. There was a genocide going on. <laughs> and so that's why they floated him down the river and he was saved. And then in a moment of anger and rage, he kills a man who's trying to pick on one of his own, and then he has to flee. This is a fugitive on the run. That's where God finds him. And when God finds him, he says, Moses, I want to use you to free all those people. Can you imagine the guilt and the shame that you would be carrying at that moment, and you would just say, this can't be God, right? Because who am I to do that? But he chooses to step into it. He chooses to step out of bitterness and into grace and into trust and say, yes, God, okay, I'll trust you in this. And then finally, we get all the way down. We get, well, we have tons of characters along the way, including King David and Ruth and all these beautiful stories. And we're going to go through those in the character uh, series. But finally down the line, we get Jesus. And this is the ultimate picture of someone who could choose bitterness or who could choose grace. When Jesus is on the cross, I don't know if you've ever been on a cross. <laughs> when he's on the cross, he chooses to look down and say, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That is a true moment of rooted grace and not a root of bitterness. But to say, even in this moment as I hang here ashamed and about to die, I'm choosing to lean in to grace because that's what I'm all about. When Jesus comes back uh, from the dead, there's all of these cool little stories of him encountering his disciples. And, and I love the way that he does it because if you kind of pay attention, he kind of surprises them. There's one moment where they're in a locked room, a locked room, and he just kind of pops out of nowhere and he says, Shalom. Um, shalom is a beautiful word. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. Shalom basically means uh, what the may the peace be with you, peace. But it's a deeper peace than we could ever understand. You see, shalom is God's ultimate plan for the whole universe. 
Shalom is that this peace would be restored, this peace that was initially created in the garden, that we would all have that. And so when you say shalom as a greeting, what you're doing is just in a small way saying like, may it be that this is all restored. Shalom. But the other funny part about that is if when we were just in Israel, if you go to Israel, they're just, they're throwing shalom around like it's a high, right? Like shalom, 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 shalom. So I just picture kind of Jesus popping in and it's like they're seeing the risen body of Jesus Christ and him just going, hi. You know, like, so it's a casual greeting. There's a huge deal. Do you think a casual hi comes from someone who is rooted in bitterness, <laughs> right? What if he was rooted in bitterness? What would he say when he encountered the disciples, right? What would he say when he encounters Peter later on? He would probably rebuke those people and say, you guys left me. What the heck? That's not the response. The response is peace. The response is high. The response is, hey, let's start a conversation. It's a holy invitation to say, well, hey, how will you respond? How will you respond to this? And the cool part is if we have this Jesus that we get to follow, then we have an example to follow. So Jesus responding in that way, in that high, in grace, and not in bitterness, uh, how do we follow that? Well, what's really cool is he gives us a blueprint for this. When someone asks him what the most important commandment is, uh, he says this, this is out of Mark 12. He says, Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel, listen. Our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, what's interesting is this verse has come up like, two times in this series. We focused on the, the strength part, which is that word meod, which basically means like it doesn't have an English translation. Um, it, the closest thing we could get to it with strength, which we think is an outward thing, uh, is actually an inward thing. And when the Hebrews were talking about it, they were saying it, the best thing we got is much but they say that's not even good enough, so it's more like muchness. And then they said that's really not good enough. So the best definition we have of strength here is very muchness, <laughs> which if you're an English teacher, you're ready to slaughter me, right? Like very muchness is not a word, and yet that's as close as we can get to it in English. Love him with all your very muchness. But the part I want to focus on today uh, is where he says the most important one is Israel, listen. Listen. Now, what's really cool about that word, listen, and what's really cool about this verse is this verse is not Jesus just spitting something out of midair. It's not an original creation from Jesus. This is out of a prayer of Deuteronomy, and it's called the Shema. And the Shema is a prayer that the Jewish people would pray in the morning and at night, and it was a sign of devotion. So you'd wake up in the morning and you'd pray, and part of your prayer was to pray that, hey, I'm going to listen today, and I'm going to respond with my very muchness. And you would start your day that way and you would end your day that way. I think that we could use a whole lot more of that rhythm in our lives. You're more than welcome to start doing that morning and night. But that word listen is, and that word uh, the most important is Israel listen, the way that this verse, that, that's the word Shema. So that's where we get the prayer. That's where we get the, the phrase of the prayer. But that word, hear or listen, is Shema. And what's cool about that is that's another word we really don't have a solid translation for because we translate it as listen or hear. 
And so whenever you see the words listen or hear in the scriptures, you have to kind of replace it with this. It's Shema, which basically means both listen, and this is going to be complicated for us as Americans, both listen and obey. And obey is just a word we don't like at all, right? Like obey. But in Jesus' culture, listening was not a passive thing you just did with your ears. It was not passive. It was active. Listening was an action. It wasn't just a passive thing. For us, listening kind of puts you on the, the sort of passive side of things, right? The person talking has the power. Not in that day. The person talking has just as much power as the person who's actually listening because in their listening, they're about to respond with their very muchness, right? They are responding with their very muchness just in their listening. Think about that in terms of prayer and the way that we pray and the way that we're taught to pray. Most of us were taught to pray by talking. God, here I am. I'm sorry. Thank you for this, right? But the truth is, and that Shema, what that reminds us of, is listening is just as powerful as speaking when it comes to talking to God. Because if you're listening with the intent to obey, then you're going to make the right response. If we're talking all about response this morning, it's all about that Shema. It's listening in a way to God. Listening, paying attention to the stuff that is around you so that you can obey and you can respond to that holy invitation. To that holy invitation. I just wonder how many times in my life, how many times in my day, how many times this morning I have passed some holy invitation by because I have not truly been listening, or to put it in a terrible way, schmying. <laughs> I haven't been truly listening. And that's so easy because we have so many distractions and stuff, folks, but really, to listen intently is a huge gift to whoever is speaking to you, no matter if you agree with them or not. If in our divided country right now we put a little more schma in the ingredients, we might have a more civil conversation. Because we have people that are actually listening, not just ready to formulate the next argument they're going to throw out because they caught a couple buzzwords, right? But truly hearing. That's what it takes to respond well. That's what it takes to respond not in bitterness, but in grace. It's all about the response. Do you know that Jesus, one of his most common phrases, follow me? He says, follow me so many times to disciples, to tax collectors, to just people. Hey, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And what's remarkable about that is that when he says, follow me, a lot of people, and it looks weird to us, like when he says it to the disciples, the Bible says they just dropped their nets and they followed him. That's weird to us. We would be like, okay, hold, please. I'm going to uh, seek counsel on this. I might call my grandma. Uh, I'm probably going to uh, quit my job. I'm going to need to give two weeks' notice to that. Like, but these guys just go like, boom, nets down, let's go. Why? Because they're ready to respond. Because they understand what it is to listen. They're listening with the intention of obeying. And they've encountered something so amazing, so great, so crazy, that their reaction is, I have to obey this. There are only a few instances where Jesus says, follow me, and the people don't. And guess what we know about them? Almost nothing besides the fact that they said no. Their place in history ends right when they said no. Their place in our minds and our conversation ends right when they said no, and that's so tragic. Because it's scary. 
And it's always supposed to be scary. Here's a little fun fact for you. Jesus says, follow me 22 times in the New Testament. And what's a little wink at that is 22 is the prophetic number for chaos and disorganization. <laughs> Basically meaning like if you follow him, it might be chaos and it might be completely disorganized. But you know what? You're following something amazing. It's always built in. Follow him. But it's that chance to actually listen. It's scary. It's really scary. When I was uh, freshly graduated from high school, um, 18 years old, I was working at a Borders bookstore, uh, and I hated it. I was in the music section, uh, and I considered myself a music snob, but working in a very corporate sector, and so I was just like, eh, man, I was, I was insufferable. You didn't want to know me at 18. Um, but I'm working in this place, and, uh, and I was just, I just wanted to, I was also going to school at the same time, and I was like, I just, I just wanted like, another job. If I could just get another job besides this, maybe more flexible. Um, and this teen center that I used to play concerts at uh, gave me a call, and they were like, hey, we're looking for an outreach coordinator. And I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, it pays this much, and you don't have to be in the office all the time. You're mostly doing visits. And I was like, sign me up. So I went, and I became their outreach coordinator uh, just for a matter of months. Um, that's a different story. But uh, while I was there, uh, I didn't realize that it wasn't just like any nonprofit, and this was a small nonprofit, it wasn't just going to be like, I'm just going to go make presentations and then come back and rally ho. No, you get like, I mean, you're, you're cleaning toilets, you're doing all the grunt work. You're, any job in a nonprofit, you're going to be doing like four different things that were never really on your job description. So I get in there, and part of the job description is that you have to have a, an entire day at this teen center, which you plan if you're on staff. So I had to plan a whole day. Uh, of activities and stuff for these kids. And so this teen center served really, really at-risk youth. Um, really at-risk youth. Like some of them have been in and out of juvie. This was their one place. They got to take cooking classes, computer classes, all this really cool stuff there. Uh, but it was a rough scene. Uh, and here I am, this little dude, freshly out of high school. I'm the same age as most of them. Uh, and I'm supposed to plan an entire day. So we plan the whole day. It's going great. Like so far, like I'm connecting, things are good. We get to the end, and the end, I just built in free time, which I thought would go swimmingly. <laughs> uh, free time, which you could play pool, you could play ping pong, you could do whatever. We're playing pool. And this guy comes up to me and says, Josh, I'm going to challenge you to a game of pool. And I said, okay, cool. Uh, and he's a real big dude. Um, and I knew this individual had, had, had a history. And then I was like, yeah, this is awesome. This is a real chance to bond. I started playing pool. Now, what this individual did not know uh, is that my parents sent me to fat camp when I was a child, and to get out of hikes, I would play pool and fake sick. So I'm very good at pool. <laughs> so I was playing pool with him, uh, and I began to win. Uh, and as I began to win, he slammed his pool cue down on the pool table uh, and looked at me and said, if I ever see your face around here, I'm going to and then he used some very creative language about where that pool stick would go, right? So I, I looked him in the eyes, yes, sir. So I told my boss, I think it's, I think it's the safe move if I go home now. Uh, and I remember sitting in my car and just going like, oh my gosh, I can't go back. I gotta quit, right? Like this, this kid is gonna kill me with a pool cue. <laughs> like I can't go back in here. And this is one of those moments that just felt this overwhelming presence and just this sense of, hey, if you're not willing to, to kind of die to yourself here, I know that's dramatic language, but that's straight out of the Bible. If you're not willing to like die to yourself, if you're not willing to like kill this fear, then you're not going to be able to follow me. You have to trust me through this. And so I went back to work the next day, and then I went back to work the next day, just, just trusting 
that I was following in the right way. And that takes that shema sort of thing that like, okay, I'm going to listen, I'm going to obey. But when you listen and obey, you have to ignore a very, very, very advert thing, which is fear. And fear and cynicism are always going to be the things that get in your way that say, hey, it's dangerous over there. It's safer over here. Stay over here. I'll protect you. And God is always going to be the one that says, I'm stronger than fear if you only let me be. I can take you further than fear will ever take you if you only let me do that. And the best example of this is the Red Sea. So this is the final scripture we'll go through this morning. Um, This is uh, Moses. And we just kind of described his story loosely, but Moses has just taken these people out of Egypt and they've, uh, they've encountered this sea, right? Uh, this, this vast thing of water. And then on the other side, uh, Pharaoh's army is coming after them. So you can imagine there's a little bit of panic. These people don't have boats. There's not rafts. I mean, we're, we're going to have to swim across this thing. What are we going to do? We're going to have to go around it. We're going to have to fight them. Or are we all going to die? There's panic going on. And Moses is charged to kind of lead this. So here's what the scripture says. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Right. What a cynical statement to say to someone who just saved you out of slavery. Right. (laughs) Was it because we couldn't die there that you'd like to take us here to die? Right. So the panic is setting in. Fear is setting in. Cynicism is setting in. Um, What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What's going on here? We've got a choice, right? And bitterness is winning. (laughs) And bitterness is winning because fear is winning. Fear is very powerful in this moment, right? And in this moment, the Israelites have just gone from sheer joy out of being taken out from one moment where they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this God can do all these plagues and get us out of this slavery mess. And now we're here. Now I'm kind of back to panic, kind of trusting that maybe that was just a fluke. or Maybe it was my imagination. I don't know if he really has that much power after all. Right? Fear, bitterness is setting in. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. By the way, that's one of 366 times the phrase, do not be afraid, or something like it appears in Scripture, which you're doing the math is one for every day plus one. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. So here's a little bit of practical advice when bitterness comes into our lives. Take a break. Pause. Trust in God, something way bigger than you, and just stand there and watch what happens. Is there another slide after that, or are we done? No, we're done? Good. Okay. Stand and just watch what happens. You see, a little cultural uh, context here. We don't know exactly where they would have crossed that Red Sea or if it was the Reed Sea. There's a whole bunch of like, scholarly debate in terms of like, where it was, how long it was, the distance was. I got super nerdy this week and all caught up. I'm like, I just wanted to see how far it would be 
for them to cross from one side to the other. Because have you ever been in that situation where you say yes to something and you're like, I've done the brave thing, I'm in, I've overcome my fear, and then you're about like an hour into it and you're like, what have I done here, right? Like, so I was thinking like, how long was it for them to go and I couldn't find out distance. No one can measure distance. But one scholar that I think was fascinating talked about we can't measure the distance, but what I'd like to take a stab at is measuring the time. He said, if we do the math, and there's all sorts of like indicators of how many people were there, there's at least over two million Israelites here. Uh, they have livestock, they have, they have bags that they're carrying, they've taken all their belongings with them. Two million people. Some believe there are as many as three million people. And they're all standing on the banks of this shore. And what God is about to do is he's about to open a highway <laughs> through there. Now, have you ever tried to fit two million cars through a single lane highway, right? There's going to be utter chaos. What the scholar does at his best guess is that it would have taken nine hours to get all of the Israelites from one side to the next. Now I'll give you a frightening picture. What if you're at the back of the line? <laughs> How long is this water going to hold? <laughs> What's going on here? Is Moses still waving his hand? Are we good? Is everything cool? Am I going to make it through? Let me give you a more frightening picture. What if you're in the middle? And here's the frightening picture that relates to our lives. What if you're in the middle right now? See, most of our life is going to be in the middle moments. Not the highs, not the lows, but the solid like 5 or 6.5. And in all honesty, that could be the most terrifying place to be. What if you're in the middle? What if you're saying, should I have gone back? Should I keep going forward? What do I do? Because to choose back would be to choose bitterness, to choose forward would be to choose grace. And to be honest with you, they're both freaking me out right now. And that's where that advice comes. Simply be still. Other translations of that verse say, hold your peace. Hold your peace. Which goes beyond self-help books, which goes beyond breathing techniques, which goes beyond call your grandma. All of those things go beyond the outward thing. Holding your peace is not actually you holding it, it's allowing God to hold it for you. It's saying, I trust something bigger than ourselves. Everyone in this room is going to face a Red Sea moment. And if we know anything from the Bible and the history, you're probably going to face more than one. <laughs> Will you choose to walk through or will you choose to remain on the other side? And my prayer for you is that you would hand that over and let God decide. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful just for, um, for your choice, for your grace. The fact that grace has the power to permeate over all things, that our lives can be soaked in grace, that we can be agents of grace. And God, I just choose that we would be a people that would not choose to move forward in bitterness and be agents of bitterness, but we would bring in that grace in the world and the communities around us. And that includes our workplaces, our families, our, our apartments, our houses, everything. May your grace not just be everywhere, but may we witness your grace everywhere. May we choose to shema, may we choose to listen and obey.
Amen.